0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the uh, BTog uh, World Lung Conference 2020. In an hour, thank you very much for joining us uh, this evening, uh, fresh from your clinics, I'm sure, uh, in the uh, lovely NHS clinic room I'm sitting in at the moment. Uh, Cover next slide, please. Um, so. Uh, as you know, uh, BDOG's wonderful organization, which is run entirely uh, or nearly all entirely uh, by Dawn and Gina, to which we are very grateful. If you ever want to contact us or find out more information, please use the emails uh, here and the website uh, below. Could I grab the next slide? little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. The usual thing is we're really keen that you guys interact with us. On my left here I've got a second screen uh, with a fantastic piece of software. If you send through the questions uh, I can then get these to the panelists um, and the feedback we've had uh, for many times over the past year is that this interaction, QA. Q&A is one of the most useful bits. So please don't hold back. We'd be delighted if you could stick your name in and uh, maybe where you work as well. But if you're feeling shy and want to send an anonymous question, that's absolutely fine. Um, if you're into um, certificates, certificates, even of attendance, then please fill out uh, the feedback form. So this is the agenda. I'm delighted to be joined uh, by my colleagues and friends. Uh, Riaz Shah, if you just go back up one, over enthusiastic with a clicker. Uh, back up one. Uh, thank you, uh, Ria Shah, who is a uh, medical oncologist at Maidstone uh, hosp- uh, Hospital. Uh, Fiona MacDonald, who is a clinical oncologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital, and Richard Button, who is a respiratory physician in Manchester. Now, before we start, I'm just going to very briefly tell you about what on earth World Lung Conference is, because one of the advantages of the um, the virtual Um, conferences, a lot more people can now see uh, and access these conferences and you may not be that aware of it. So World Lung Conference is a meeting organized by a body called IASLAC, which is an awful abbreviation, but stands for the International Association of the Study of Lung Cancer. It was set up in the kind of 1970s actually in in North America, but as time has gone on, it's kind of gravitated to be more of a global representation of lung cancer research um, and development. Um, and their meeting is World Lung or WCLC, World, Cancer, World Conference on Lung Cancer. It used to be held every two years. It's now held every year. And their focus more recently has kind of been on the non-North American, non-European uh, professional colleagues as much as ourselves. And I think that's fantastic. So the big focus on China, Southeast Asia and those kind of areas. And the conference tends to move once North America, once Europe and once in uh, in Asia. Um, so uh, it's a great uh, meeting to go to. Um, it's also one that if you have an abstract, which maybe isn't going to be quite the quantity you need to squeeze into, for example, ASCO, then getting your abstract and maybe your presentation into World Lung is often possible. So it's a really good thing to look for if you've got data to present. So without any further ado, I'm delighted to, wait to welcome uh, Riaz to go through the top medical oncology abstracts. That's going to be about 10 minutes and then we've got five minutes of questions. So do please send them through. Uh, Riaz, uh, next slide please. The floor is yours.
1: Thank you very much for the uh, invitation to speak. Um, These are my disclosures. I want to specifically uh, thank Takeda for sponsoring me for registration for the meeting, and I'd also like to specifically thank my trust for having the foresight to give me study leave in this difficult situation. Um, I'm tasked with talking in 15 minutes about everything in Wollong. There's a huge amount of data, so if I'm curt, apologies, time is of the essence you guys have to think fast and I have to talk fast. This talk is specifically relevant to UK practice. You have to appreciate the practice standards vary across the world. And even within the UK, we have devolved nations with slight differences in practice. So apologies if I say anything that something is approved or not approved, if it's not approved in your uh, particular devolved nation. I, I'm, I work in England and, and I, my, that's my sphere of knowledge. So number one, the money shot from world lung is this study. This is, a, I think, the key study from World Lung. It's a mesothelioma trial called the confirmed study. It's a UK study, and it's a study of relapsed malignant mesothelioma, both peritoneal and plural, where patients were randomized two to one to receive nivolumab, 221 patients, or placebo, 111 patients. The uh, study was recruiting very well, but had to be stopped just before it completed accrual due to the COVID pandemic uh, causing chaos, and they'd realised they had enough to give a statistical answer. So this is the key study uh, results, the overall survival, as you can see, there's a statistically significant improvement in the median from 6.6 to 9.2 months, the hazard ratio is positive, the p-value is less than 0.05, so that is statistically significant. And if you look at investigator-led, progress investigator-assessed progression-free survival, again, very small difference, but a still a reasonable difference and it's statistically significant. So here we have the first randomized trial showing any drug is better than best supportive care in the subsequent line setting using this kind of these numbers of patients, you know, several hundred. Now subgroup analysis of this trial is really interesting because they looked at PDL1 positive patients about 37 just under 40% of patients were positive for PDL1 in this study and what you see on the left hand side the two curves show that PDL1 positivity or negativity had no impact on the outcome so this benefit is independent of pdl one and surprisingly is also independent of the subtype of histology because in the first line checkmate 743 study of nivo we see a very strong signal for sarcomatoid mesothelioma that we're not seeing here. We don't really understand that but that's of interest. So that's the confirmed study, number one, really important study. Next I'm going to talk about immunotherapy. I want to caveat that we just remember. Remember from ESMO last year, we had an update of the four-year, I believe, outcomes from Keynote 24. So this is pdl one greater than 50%. And what you see there in that red box is that of 36 months at three years, 43% of patients are alive. So remember that as we whiz through this data. So we've had updates from old, old studies. So the Keynote 010 is a second-line study of two doses of pembrolizumab versus docetaxel. And they presented five-year overall survival and look at the patients with greater than 50% at five years, 25% of patients are still alive. Ast- astronomical results, unheard of in lung cancer, absolutely amazing. And even in the PDL1 greater than 1%, it's 15.6% alive at five years. Now, remember that PDL1 TPS greater than 1% includes all the patients on the left hand curve that are greater than 50%. Keynote 189, the key study of chemo IO versus chemotherapy. Uh, we had four-year follow-up, and this is the overall data. So at 36 months, 31% of patients were alive. But look at this. This is really interesting. On the left, you can see pdl one high, greater than 50%, 43.7% of patients alive at 36 months, identical almost to single-agent pembrolizumab. So the answer as to whether – so strong evidence that maybe chemo IO may not be better than IO alone and greater than 50%. We're not 100% sure. It's still, an unanswered question, but look at the curve on the far right the less than one percent. So, PDL1 negative patients 5.3 percent of patients alive at five years, increasing to 23. So, that's a massive improvement. So, even the PDL1 negative patients benefit from chemo IO, and the benefit is the absolute benefit is much greater than uh, the high PDL1 patients. A very substantial difference so that's really powerful because many of us get a bit of a heart sink when a PDL1 negative patient comes in, and it's really important to remember that chemo IO is very effective for this subgroup of patients. Um, Keynote 42 is an interesting study. So Keynote 24, Pembro versus chemo in high PDL one This is exactly the same study, chemo versus Pembro in, in PD-L1, but the scoring isn't greater than 50%, it's greater than 1%. And we had a three-year survival uh, update from this. And what you see, three-year survival, P- TPS greater than 50%, 31% of patients are alive at 36 months. So we're seeing a very consistent signal here that combining chemo with IO or IO alone in high pdl ones delivers very profound paradigm-shifting levels of survival that we've never seen in lung, advanced lung cancer before. Um, However, with keynote 42, if you just look at patients with low expression between one to 49, you see that PEMBRO is no better than chemotherapy. And that's really important because this is approved certainly by, through the CDF uh, in, in the UK. So we can give single agent PEMBRO to a patient thats uh, is PD-L1 between one to 49%. It's no better than chemo, but you could argue that it's less toxic. Therefore, uh, you know, it's not a reason, unreasonable option for selected patients. Um, now, this is a really big study. This is the first time this has been presented. Uh, this is the Keynote 5898 study. So different concepts. So we're just looking at high pdl one patients so greater than 50% with advanced disease. They know EGFR or ALK. And the ra- randomization is to Pembro alone as the standard arm. We all agree that single agent pembro is the standard of care for this patient. But the investigational arm is to combine Pembro with the CTLA-4 antibody ipilimumab. And there's a lot of excitement about NIVO IPI, for example, here, we're looking at Pembro IPI. And does that deliver any additional benefit? And no, it doesn't. Look at the PFS, look at the OS, absolutely flat as a pancake. There's nothing between them. So Nivo IP is not uh, Pembro IPI is not superior. Um, but the toxicity is significant. So, grade three, five treatment related adverse events, 35% versus 20%. This trial was actually stopped by the IDMC for futility and excess toxicity. So, really interesting. So, we know that Pembro is better for PDL1 high patients. Chemo IO is an option, but now we know IOIO doesn't seem to be more effective. So I'm going to call it a day with uh, immunotherapy studies and move on to actionable mutations. And I want to specifically focus on KRAS mutations and a particular KRAS mutation called G12C. Now KRAS mutations are very common. It's the commonest actionable mutation in lung cancer. And 50% of those patients have this particular KRAS mutation called G12C. And G12C is important because there are targeted inhibitors of uh, G12C. And what you see in this table is all of the FDA approved uh, drugs and actionable mutations currently approved in the US for advanced lung cancer. And it's important to note that G12C KRAS mutations are quite common and they're more common than ALK, ROS, RET and NTRAC all combined. So this is a significant bit of data I'm about to show you. And what I'm about to show you is the code, rate, code break 100 study of a KRAS G12C inhibitor called RAZIB, 960 milligrams once a day given in basically a single arm study until disease progression. 126 patients, many of them, most of them current or former smokers most of them have had prior chemotherapy, most of them have had prior immunotherapy. So a very advanced disease state of patients. And look at that forest plot, it's very significant. Look at the swimmer's plot below that. What you can see is the gray bars The green dots after the gray bars are the first radiological time point showing response. So what you see with Sotorazib is very early responses that seem to be durable. The actual published response rate, 37%, seems a little bit low to me for an actionable mutation. Disease control rate looks good. The PFS rate, 6.8 months, and a very low treatment-related dose uh, treatment-related adverse events leading to dose reduction, 22% is actually quite low compared to a lot of other TKI type drugs that we look at. So here we've got a new drug, it's coming along, it's gonna get approved and hopefully it'll be nice approved shortly and we'll need to start all doing KRAS subtyping to manage our patients. Um, A few other little things of interest. So this is a nice Japanese study comparing, um, uh, it's a non-inferiority study comparing docetaxel at 60 milligrams per meter squared, which in Japan is the standard dose of docetaxel. So that is equivalent to 75 in a Western population. And they compared it to albumin bound Paclitaxel, NAB Paclitaxel um, in a non-inferiority study. Now docetaxel is once every three weeks. We don't like giving it because it's a nasty drug. NAB-paclitaxel is weakly, so do remember that. Um, And if you look at the results, what you see is non-inferiority has been confirmed. There's a suggestion that it might be superior because the NAB-paclitaxel arm seems to be performing better. And if you look at the forest plot, you get a suggestion that nab Paclitaxel might be doing better, although that is not statistically significant. And the main interest of this, you see the same with progression-free survival, a benefit to progression-free survival. This is actually statistically significant. So the PFS is longer with nab-paclitaxel over docetaxel, but the main selling point for this is toxicity. So if you look at febrile neutropenia, grade three to four febrile neutropenia with docetaxel, 22% with nab-paclitaxel, 2%. So here's an alternative treatment that we could Um, we could give um, our patients, if we could get this approved, that would substantially reduce the potential toxicities in terms of febrile neutropenia, but at the expense, as you can see on that table, of perhaps a bit more peripheral sensory neuropathy. Um, What about EGFR mutations? This is a very complex area. There are lots of studies. There are lots of mutations, uncommon mutations of EGFR, for which targeted drugs are being developed, so mobocertinib seems to be very active in exon 20 insertions, and we've already know that from a lot of data presented at meetings. But there's updated data here. You can see a lovely. Um, uh, um, Plot showing uh, good responses to mobocertinib in patients with exon 20 insertions. These are all platinum pretreated. Here's some lovely data with a bispecific monoclonal antibody to EGFR and MET called amivantamab in exon 20 insertions, a new TKI called neratinib in exon 18 insertions. I haven't put a slide here, but there was even some data on a completely new mutation where you get truncations in the C-terminus. So this is exons 25 to 28 of EGFR, show, which our current testing paradigms don't pick up on. 0. 25% of patients have these, uh, showing some of these EGFR TKIs can work. So beautiful data emerging on subtypes and different targeted treatments for submutations of EGFR. Um, my has stopped working, and that's come back again. This is really important, I think. This is a Japanese study comparing nivolumab to nivolumab plus ipilimumab, immunotherapy single agent versus dual in EGFR mutation positive patients. Right, and the reason I put this up is look at that um, look at that forest plot. Uh, look, look, uh, look, look at the um, waterfall plot. I mean, and look at the PFS. It's completely inert. Single agent IO does not work uh, very well for EGFR mutation positive patients. And so, I think you know, even though many of these patients are PDL1 one positive, one should uh, refrain from giving them single agent IO. Um, A few updates from osimertinib in the adjuvant setting. There's already a trial called ADURA that shows a very significant DFS benefit. What we had at World Lung was a bit of uh, data showing that patients who had or had not had adjuvant chemotherapy seem to benefit from adjuvant osimertinib equally, which raises the question whether resected EGFR mutation positive patients even need adjuvant chemo at all. Uh, And there's some good uh, uh, um, uh, quality of life data showing no detriment. Um, And that's it, thank you
0: very much. Yes, thank you very much, that was heroic. I should just say to the audience, I'm indebted to my uh, co-speakers here, they got very, very little notice uh, to present to pull this all together, Uh, partly because I didn't tell them in time, but also partly because of course, uh, it's only a few days after World Lung, you're once accessing it remotely. Um, and with playback function of World Lung is, is pretty good, but you'll have to wait 48 hours if you happen to have missed the original presentation. And given the fact it was in Singapore time, the original presentations were at 3 a.m. So it's quite a challenge and, and uh, really I'm extremely grateful. I've got a couple of questions coming through on the left here. Uh, one from John Edwards, one of our esteemed surgical colleagues and great BTOG friend, Dr. Shah is very formal. Dr Shah, if you were to predict what NICE might say about immunotherapy for mesothelioma this summer, what would you say? Uh,
1: I think there's an EAM scheme opening very shortly. So it's, it's almost standard of care with it, uh, uh, imminently. I have some concerns about the EAM scheme because we don't know what NICE are going to say. And uh, the EM scheme may leave some patients uh, high and dry, having to stop treatment early. Uh, if NICE, restrict uh, IO to certain subpopulations. I think nivo is going to be an approved treatment on the NHS. I'm quite sure of it. I'm sure BMS are going to work very hard to get that on. What I'm not sure about is whether they'll restrict it. I think when you look at the data, you could certainly argue that it's for biophasics and sarcomatoids and possibly positive P D L one positive patients uh, with epithelioid. Um, I think that will be a numbers game according to the price discount and I, I don't know. I, I'm intrigued to know, but I, I don't think we'll. I don't think it'll be
0: unapproved. I think we will be using it. Thank you very much. Uh, a couple of questions regarding um, uh, Pembro or Niv as the relapse. Now you showed data on Confirm, which is Nivolumab in relapsed uh almost eighteen months ago when we were able to travel to different countries and we weren't all stuck at home. We saw the PROMISE study with second-line Um in relapsed mesothelioma. Um, in the uh, uh, world where all drugs are available, you're seeing someone with relapsed mesothelioma. Riaz, would you choose uh, NIV? Would you choose Pembro? Would you be choosing Vinarel? Can one choose between these agents? I think it's difficult. I think there are multiple standards of care in this disease,
1: as in lung cancer. There are options. I think you have to have a very open discussion with patients and kind of guide them. Ultimately, it's a... Pay to do decision for the patient and clinician to make together. Personally, uh, my view is that nivolumab is probably equivalent to pembrolizumab, is equivalent to vinorelbine, based on extrapolating from confirm and, and the PROMISE study. I do think there is some data with the MAPS study that nivo ip may be, it's not a direct comparison. So I think if I was in my clinic and I had complete clinical freedom to do anything I wanted and I had a fit patient, who hadn't had nivolumab in the first line setting? I think my second line treatment of choice would be nivolumab at the moment, um, but you know I think there are options, uh, and, I, I, and I think patients—you know—these are really different. They're not our normal lung cancer patients. They're a very fit group of patients. Many of my meso patients, you know, live for very long periods of time and are able to sustain multiple lines of treatment,
0: uh, and I think we'll end up cycling through many of those options as we go through to go down the journey. Indeed. And in fact, Joe Evans makes a good point, which is currently through the uh, NHS England uh, NICE, temporarily nivolumab is available second line, um, certainly in England, um, that may be temporary. Um, we are running out of time, so I'm just going to do one or two other questions. question from our colleague David Gill- Gilligan saying, uh, with such good long-term results for patients who have had IO with partial response stable disease after completing two years of therapy, and then they progress after a period of follow-up. Um, what should we be doing? There was some data, I think, Riaz on, on rechallenge with immunotherapies. What's your? Yeah, this
1: is a this is an area I just didn't have the time to go into. But if you look at those IO presentations, many of them were presenting data on what happened to people after thirty six. Uh, after, after their 35 cycles and what happened in the rechallenge set uh, many of those patients and many of the trial protocols allowed reuse of Pembro. So one of my concerns about the excellent outcome data we're seeing is are we going to see that where we can't do re-challenge and I have serious concerns about that. Um, so um, we know that the data which I haven't gone through but it is there shows very substantial response rates to rechallenge in Pembroke in people who've had it before. It's not just people who complete two years. Probably only 5% of people genuinely complete 35 cycles of treatment without complications. Many of my patients stop early for whatever reason. And subsequently a year, two years down the line, they're progressing, you'd like that, you'd like to be able to rechallenge them, but you can't. So it's it's a huge hole that we have in our UK practice of not being free to use these drugs as we see fit.
0: Yes, thank you very much indeed. We will uh, move on. You have the clinic to go back to, so uh, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, without any further ado, we will move on to the clinical oncology side of things, and I'm delighted to be joined by Finn McDonald, clinical oncologist at, at the Royal Marsden Hospital, um, who's going to take us through um, many aspects. And Fiona, I'm very grateful because I know that there wasn't such a huge volume of pure radiation therapy studies. And I know that you branched out to a number of different subjects. So thank you for doing that. And we look forward to your thoughts.
2: Thank you, Tom. Um, and thank you to BTOG for the invitation. Um, so yes, as um, Tom has alluded to, just um, it's quite a sensitive clicker. Oh, missing a slide there. Anyway, so I'm just going to run through everything I could find essentially in early stage disease, other than the adjuvant study that Riaz has already mentioned. Um, so, branching slightly out of radiotherapy. Um, so, the first trial I wanted to go through was the LCMC3 trial, um, which is actually looking at neoadjuvant atezolizumab in resectable patients. Um, So this was a single single arm phase two study that took patients with stage 1B to 3, uh, including a a few 3Bs, who were considered resectable and gave them two cycles of atezolizumab um, prior to their surgical resection um, and then followed them up uh, with the primary endpoint of this study being major pathological response, uh, which is defined as less than 10% of viable tumour cells um, uh, pathologically post-resection. Don't know why this is jumping to every time. Okay, so this is the um, waterfall plot that we get for pathological response. And you can see out of the 159 patients, those in blue achieved uh, a major pathological response and those in orange at the end there a complete pathological response. So overall that's 21%. In the major pathological response and seven percent uh, complete pathological response. Sorry, I might need to get you to overrun this because it's jumping too slight Yeah, I'll just say next slide because it's jumping two at a time. Next slide, please. All right. So this is the um, the the. Type of resection data, so you can see the majority of patients in this study had lobectomy, uh, with a few having uh, pneumonectomy or bilobectomy, um, and the majority of patients had an R0 resection, just a small uh, percentage with R1 or R2. Um, down below you can see those that patients um, who were downstaged and those who were upstaged, so 43% overall were downstaged following the immunotherapy, with 19% being upstaged um, at, at surgery. Next slide, please. This is the adverse events. So, if you look at both the treatment-related adverse events pre-operatively and post-operatively, as well as the immune-related, nothing too unexpected there, uh, knowing the profile of atezolizumab and usual surgical resection. Just one uh, death less than thirty days after surgery, and one death between thirty and ninety days um, following surgery. The first one was a sudden death. The second one was pneumonitis. Next slide, please. Um, so this, these were the conclusions um, in, in the presentation that they met their primary endpoint of major pathological response observing 21%. Um, it was well tolerated with no new safety signals outside of what we know from up and surgery with low perioperative morbidity and mortality. Um, time. Uh, I didn't show the data, but it was all given within a timely window, so surgery wasn't unduly delayed after the uh, atezolizumab and, of course, the high uh, R0 uh, resection rates. So adding weight to the ongoing uh, Phase three IMPACT study, which includes chemo as well, so that's um, neoadjuvant atezolizumab with platinum-based uh, chemotherapy. Next slide, please. So the next uh, study I want to go through is the Keynote 799 uh, trial. So the design of this trial essentially is similar to Pacific, but using Pembrolizumab. um, And the Pembrolizumab is brought forward in in the course of treatment. So rather than waiting till after chemoradiotherapy, you start with Pembrolizumab and chemotherapy for the first cycle while you're planning the radiotherapy. And then you're giving Pembro with chemo uh, during the radiotherapy for, for six weeks, so two further cycles and then up to 17 cycles of maintenance uh, with the pembrolizumab. Um, This is not a randomized study, although at first glance you would think it was. It was divided into two cohorts based on what chemotherapy they were given. So if you had squamous or non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, you could go into cohort A that had uh, carboplatin and paclitaxel as the chemo backbone, um, and just some non squamouses could elect to go into the pemetripsid uh, cisplatin backbone. Next slide, please. So um, the PDF, unfortunately, has the box slipped highlighting uh, the overall response rate down there. But essentially, the primary endpoint of overall response, whether it was cohort A or cohort B, um, was around the 70%. 70% um, and then they sliced and diced down the bottom via... Um, PDL one uh, status, whether it's less than one percent or greater than one percent, and then sliced and diced by histology. And essentially, across the board, whichever way you look at it, it's between sixty five and seventy percent overall response rate in all of those groups. Next slide, please. So this is the swimmers plot looking at um, treatment length, um, uh, and some patients are still ongoing with treatment in both cohorts, as you can see. But across both cohorts, the median time to response in these patients is just over uh, two two months. Next slide, please. Uh, So this is the uh, progression-free survival curves for cohort A and cohort B, you can see. Um, with, at the 12 month rate, you get 67.7% in cohort A and 652 in cohort B. And just as a reminder, the, the um, PFS at 12, uh, 12 months in Pacific was 56%. So that's looking very promising. Next slide, please. And this is the overall survival curves for both cohort A and B. At 12 months, overall survival rate of 81.2 in cohort A and 88% in cohort B, much uh, more similar to Pacific at the 12-month rate being 83%. Next slide, please. And this is the adverse events. So looking down um, all the adverse events, whether they're immune-related um, or other, um, and particularly the pneumonitis, No real additional safety signals outside of what we expect for either concurrent chemo RAD um, or single agent PEMBRO that we know from the first line uh, metastatic setting. Next slide please. And the conclusions um, of this talk with pembrolizumab plus concurrent chemo radiotherapy is, is showing promising anti-tumor activity, uh, and that's despite uh, pdl one status or uh, tumor histology, and that we saw the overall response rate was 70% in both cohorts, uh, with good response duration um, and good, uh, so far, one-year overall uh, survival rates. Um, the With, as I say, the AEs, the adverse events being... Pretty much as we would expect, uh, knowing the toxicity profiles of both concurrent chemoradiation and Pembrolizabab pre- monotherapy. And importantly, um, no new safety concerns, particularly uh, for pneumonitis. Next slide, please. So then the next two um, studies are put uh, together. So we had um, some uh, an update on results from the RTOG1106 study uh, and the Netherlands PET boost phase 2 study. So these two studies um, are similar in design and concept to a certain extent. So they're both um, looking at whether we can use PET-CT information uh, to predict for potentially worse outcome and define a population that may benefit from tumour dose escalation um, compared to um, standard of care. They are slightly different in the timing of the PET and the actual design, which I'll come on to, Um, but really revisiting the higher radiation dose in the wake of um, RTOG 0617. Next slide, please. So the key differences here. So RTOG um, 1106, the primary endpoint in this study is two-year local control, and that's based on central review. Now, it took patients with stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer and randomized them either to um, initially 50 grey in 25 fractions. They performed a PET around 40 to 50 grey, but then carried on for the final 10 fractions, just doing two go per fraction, taking the total dose up to 60 grey, as we would expect in a standard uh, 60 and 30 paradigm. All patients were randomised uh, to the experimental arm where they delivered the first 50 grey as planned and then used the mid um, midway PET between 40 and 50 grey to then give the final 10 fractions at a higher dose per fraction based on an isotoxic approach on the mean lung dose, focusing in the dose on the uh, PET-AVID bit that was seemed least responsive, despite having had um, the majority of the course of radiation. So the pet boost study from the Netherlands, slightly different, and here we've got the one-year local control um, reporting here. So they don't have a standard arm, as we would know it, the kind of 60 and 30 without any escalation. Their standard dosing anyway in the Netherlands, as you probably know, is 66 and 24 at 2.75 grade per fraction. But all patients had some form of boost, but they were randomised to do two different approaches. One was either a boost to the whole of the primary tumour or one was to, um, a boost to the pe- a pet avid subvolume, And that was taken right from the beginning of treatment, not partway through treatment. And importantly, the nodes were kept at the standard dose. So can we just have the next slide, please? So this is the radiotherapy planning, just in a bit more detail here. So uh, RTOG1106, the control arm, you can see all the different volumes receive 60 gray, whereas the adaptive arm, you can see based on the PET during radiotherapy, potentially up to 80 gray is delivered to the the PET-defined volume midway through treatment that we think is potentially the most resistant part of the tumor. Whereas the PET boost study below, you can see the lymph nodes receiving standard dose up to 60 Six grain 24 fractions, and they're either boosting the primary tumour from the beginning isotoxically or a PET sub-volume from the beginning isotoxically. Next slide, please. Thanks. So this is the uh, local control, uh, local regional control data from RTOG um, 1106. So no significant difference uh, between the two, two arms. Um, and that's based, uh, at the, that's the two year mark. Next slide, please. So this is from the PET boost study. So there were no p-values given. Uh, this is the one year data um, that suggests the instance of recurrence. Um, the, so you've got local recurrence and regional recurrence is similar between boosting the whole primary um, and, and boosting the pet sub volume, but difficult to interpret much without the, the p-values there. Next slide, please. So putting the conclusions of the two of these together, um, so the conclusions given in um, 1106 were that adaptive radiotherapy does allow for a certain amount of dose escalation isotoxically to the tumour, but didn't reach the goal of 20 grey of additional um, dose to the PET-AVID volume partway through treatment, but did suggest that it can be safely delivered without um, any significant change in overall local regional control rate, unfortunately. Um, They did come on to discuss that there appeared to be a significant difference in the infield uh, local regional control. However, this wasn't by central review. That was just by individual investigator reported review and wasn't the primary endpoint. But so possibly something to explore further there. And then the second um, paragraph is the uh, conclusion from the the phase two pet boost trial um, that states that whether they're taking the boost to the whole primary or to the pet selected one, Um, seems to be similar but excellent local control rates demonstrated um, and the two year local failure rate was below uh, 20% and local regional failure was about 27% so hopefully more data to come out on that, but not suggesting that the PET uh, defined um, boost volume is necessarily uh, adding much in the adaptive setting. Next slide please. So the, they, the discussant went on to discuss whether, you know, there is a role for PET as a biomarker for um, dose escalation going forward or whether we should be concentrating on um, PD-L1 and uh, mutations like EGFR, etc., for helping to define SACT alone rather than changing the radiotherapy dose. Um, but I just wanted to highlight some interesting data that is worth a read in this setting that was presented at um, Astro uh, in September-October 2020, looking back at uh, the predicted biomarkers they looked at in 0617, so I'm sure you're all well aware of the 0617 uh, data that suggested higher dose was associated with survival, but interestingly, they, have a, they developed a blood biomarker in an earlier Phase two study looking at a SNP signature of DNA repair um, genes, and were able to use this enormous randomised data set um, to validate it. Next slide, please. And it does suggest that while we don't yet have an imaging biomarker like PET to help us with dose, there may be something in the, um, the blood biomarkers of these DNA repair genes because the validation set suggested that we could divide patients within 0617 by overall survival, depending whether they had a sensitive genotype um, or, or a resistant genotype. So it may be a subpopulation that would still benefit from dose escalation, but we um, don't have any further um, Data or trials running in that setting currently. Next slide, please. So, then the last one I wanted to talk about was um, the Refract study, um, which was a retrospective analysis from China um, looking at EGFR mutation positive patients uh, with unresectable locally advanced disease. So, um, this uh, retrospective study looks at 440 patients. Um, And they have been divided um, using this inverse probability of treatment weighting into three cohorts. So over over there, some patients were treated um, with concurrent or sequential chemoradiotherapy. Some patients were treated with radiotherapy and a tyrosine kinase inhibitor with or without chemotherapy. Uh, And some patients had upfront tyrosine kinase kinase inhibitors alone until tumour progression Um, So they included unresectable, 3a and 3b. It says they included EGFR and ALCS. But then in the um, different groups, it just mentions EGFR, so that wasn't terribly clear. Um, Next slide, please. So this is the, um, you know, with all the caveats that retrospective analysis come with, this is the overall survival and progression-free survival of these three cohorts. So the overall survival um, was significant, uh, sorry, was not significant, p-value of um, 0.08 with um, tyrosine kinase inhibitor in addition to the radiotherapy possibly being slightly better but not significantly so. But interesting, if you look at the progression-free survival, there was a significant benefit with the combination of EGFR EGFR TKI um, and radiation. Over and above either of the other two approaches, either chemo radiation alone or um, TKI alone. Next slide, please. And then when you look at um, the, the local regional failure and the distant failure, it's kind of as we would expect for the individual modalities. We get better local regional um, control if we're using radiation, and we get uh, less uh, distant failure if we're using TKI. But in both of these, there is a suggestion that maybe the two together, as in uh, radiation and TKI with or without chemo may be giving uh, the better result. Next slide. So, the conclusions in this retrospective analysis were compared to the standard of care of chemo radiation in patients with um, EGFR mutation, a backbone including a TKI with the radiotherapy, with or without chemotherapy, um, may be something that we should uh, be exploring more. Um, albeit this is a retrospective um, analysis. I think that might be the whistle-stop tour done. Thank you. Thank
0: you very much, Fiona. Uh, Fantastic whistle-stop, you you, you get the prize for coming up with the expression, inverse probability of treatment waiting.
2: I I I have no idea what that means, so please
0: don't ask me. It's something out of Hitchhiker's (laughs) Guide to the Galaxy. Um, So we've got a couple of questions about Keynote 799, which is the concurrent chemo-RAB with the immunotherapy. The, the PEMBRO version of Pacific and a couple of things people have asked. Um, someone called Sanjay Popats asked a question. Uh, what does he know? Uh, how far away is IO with concurrent radiotherapy being standard of care for stage three disease? And similar question from colleagues along the lines of, is this a me too study um, trying to get PEMBRO in on the Pacific act? Or do we think there's a real genuine difference between giving IO concurrently or um, giving it after you've done your chemo. rad. What, what are your thoughts on that data?
2: I, don't, I mean, I don't think we're near, near the, the clinic yes, yet, um, just based on the overall response rates. Um, but I think it's encouraging. The two things that I think are most encouraging are that we're not seeing any additional safety concerns in this study. Uh, and the second thing is um, the PDL one less than 1% doesn't seem to be, as per the DERVA, Licensing where we're not able to give it to patients, it seems to be the same overall response rate, um, regardless of PDL1. So I think those are the two key things I would take away at the moment. But of course, we, we, we need more data, and there are other studies going on with other IO agents.
0: And the uh, refract study is quite, is quite provocative, it, it, it is retrospective. Um, Fiona, you and I sit in the same MDT. Uh, the next time we have an EGFR mutated lung cancer patient with stage three disease, uh, which is ma- manageable by radical chemo radiotherapy, and I fob you off and say it's osimertinib, for example, uh, for this person. Are you going to think that's acceptable, or are you going to be hauling them down for chemo rad instead?
2: Um, so that, that is, I mean, it's a very interesting question, and it's some, something people discuss in MDTs all the time, particularly for the borderline encompassable patients. I'm sure, but. Um, in my mind, a radical treatment is still remains a radical treatment, and it doesn't preclude uh, having a TKI further down the line if you relapse. Uh, to kind of go with the TKI route first and miss a potentially radical option, it's harder to come back and give the radical t- treatment if your TKI doesn't work. Um, and I don't think we should be changing um, any standard of care on the basis of retrospective analysis. But I think it's interesting, and I think the most interesting thing there is we need the studies... Of the combinations rather than either or. Yeah
0: absolutely. Um, so um, other question regarding RTOG 1106 and the PET boost study. These are um, complicated studies um, looking to, to boost radiation dose. Are they negative because this just doesn't work and in fact we should stop trying to do this and, and focus on other things or is it trial design, a bit unlucky, small numbers, um, subgroup analysis. What what what's your take? Should, should we be pursuing this as a uh, as a further area of of, of uh, research?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's very inter- interesting. Um, you know, we've had the dose escalation in those six one seven being negative, and now these adaptive strategies being negative. Um, I do I do think the key is going to be in whether we can find a, a biomarker for patients who potentially would benefit. There's no doubt in my mind that there is an increasing role for tailoring SACT in uh, locally advanced disease, whether that's going to be IO or potentially TKI. Um, whether there's a role for you know dose escalation still and potentially in an adaptive fashion based on biomarkers like these genetic signatures that tell us how people respond to the radiation, um, I don't I don't, I don't know, but I, I don't think it's necessarily dead in the water. Um, we just need to think about things differently. I think the interesting thing about the um, Dutch study is they didn't have a, the standard of care on, and, and I quite like the approach of not escalating the nodes and um, potentially concentrating on the primary tumour because I think it's the volume over the nodes and the central structures that's probably, you know, de- leading to the cardiac morbidity. Um, even though, you know, potentially you can have very central tumours, so it, it's all a rather similar volume. Um, but the approach of just concentrating on the, the primary, which may be where the more resistant cells are or where the you know, because of the size of the tumor, they tend to be a lot bigger than the nodes. So I like that approach. Um, but I think we need better biomarkers than just PET potentially.
0: You know, you know, thank you very much indeed. Uh, That's fantastic. Uh, moving on, last and by no means least, I can hear Professor Bootin champing at the bit uh, to talk about the uh, respiratory uh, medicine aspects of World Lung. Uh, Richard is a uh, consultant respiratory physician at the Northwest uh, Lung Centre and also works uh, with Insure Hospital uh, in Manchester too. So, uh, Professor Butin, uh thank you very much for taking us through uh, the respiratory abstracts from World Lung. So,
3: uh, so thanks, Tom. Um, thanks, uh, obviously, to BTOP for uh, landing me with this privilege five days ago. Um, I've, I thoroughly enjoyed my sleepless nights. Um, so um, clearly there's been a lot of work to go through um, at World Lung, and um, in 15 minutes, as my panellist colleagues have said, it's very difficult to cover everything. So in the end, I thought I'd just try and focus on a, um, a series of uh, works that reflect Emerging practice in the UK, that being screening. Um, Some of you may be aware that NHS England is about to commit to 20 more CCGs being uh, eligible to roll out screening, uh, largely based on the the top 50 um, CCGs for lung cancer mortality. So this is becoming a broader and broader uh, issue for the UK. Uh, one thing I would say is that it was very uh, pleasing to see the UK uh, very well represented in this work, um, not only in, in primary work being presented, but also being referenced by other uh, national um, uh, bodies. So uh, I think we're clearly uh, leading the way, so very encouraging indeed. Um, this first paper, I thought I'd just try to start off in a chronological order, really. So this is about implementation barriers, and uh, this probably gets very little attention from NHS England. Um, US has been uh, active for a number of years now in this, um, and this is surveying 100 programs um, live a couple of years ago, probably about 87,000 participants in all. Um, My click is not working either, so can you next slide, please? Um, And uh, I was just struck by this that you know, this is um, only about a quarter of these uh, programs have more than a thousand patients accrued per year. Uh, and and you can pretty much guarantee that any of the NHS England programmes will have over 5,000 people per annum going in. So um, whatever barriers they're seeing at this level of activity are certainly going to be relevant to to us. And um, obviously a very broadly represented uh, screening programme activity in the US. There, Next slide, please. Um, And and regardless of um, programme setting, academic centre versus community centre, Um, The the barriers were remarkably consistently reported and it wouldn't be a surprise to work out that actually some of the financial um, issues and risks are significant, Uh, things to do with operational uh, workflow, uh, to do with how we get access to the right number of patients and then cope with that volume of patients. Um, All these things were pretty uh, evident in all the programmes that responded. uh, and interestingly, they had major concerns over you know, just recalling patients for three-month and twelve-month follow-ups, um, uh, and then tracking that, and, and obviously the staffing workflow as well, staffing uh, staffing these new programs. So these are all things we need to be highly aware of as we try and set up in these CCGs. And I think some of the delay in getting CCGs active in the UK are largely responsive responsive to not paying, I think, enough attention to how a provider. Uh, engages with a CCG to make this something your chief exec is going to um, engage in without uh, massive risk. Uh, next slide please. Um, I think one of the pleasing things for me is that the UK has taken a real uh, lead in risk stratified um, screening implementation. Uh, and this was paper from John Fields Group, uh, just look, re- revising the LLP uh, uh, version two model. Uh, which did seem to have a fairly good um, uh, a calibration, I think it was, uh, but they've revised the model now to produce version three, uh, and that certainly seems to perform better in terms of its uh, discrimination um, and sort of suggesting that uh, the equivalent uh, risk threshold might be something like 1.3% uh, to... Um, uh, to make that comparable, perhaps the PLCO, uh, at, 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 which is obviously, the, these are the two uh, calculators used in the NHS England programme. So there is a revised LLP version. It certainly seems to perform better. Um, and obviously that may have some implications for the expert advisory group to consider. Next slide, please. Here, uh, Robbins and a number of collaborators from the UK have looked at um, the comparative performance of a number of lung cancer risk models that included LLP version 2 and 3 and PLCO and something called the uh, Lung Cancer uh, Death Risk Assessment Tool. Uh, next slide. Um, and they've looked at, uh, you know, calibration, how well this fits with the population, uh, how, how well it predicts or over predicts uh, for uh, lung cancer cases or deaths, depending on the calculator. Um, And uh, clearly in terms of calibration, LLP version two was probably not um, good, but LLP version three and PLCO came out as being the best calibrated. Um, uh, This is in UK um, uh, cohorts. Uh, Next slide. In terms of discrimination, um, something called the Lung Cancer Death Risk Assessment Tool um, fared uh, best, Um, uh, LLP version two uh, the worst on the next slide. And this uh, new tool, which is, uh, again, um, uh, coming out of the American literature. Next slide, please. Um, Does seem to have the highest um, percentage of detecting future lung cancer cases and deaths uh, to be eligible for screening. So, uh, you know, it's again, it poses interesting uh, challenges as we roll out these programs as to which risk calculator we eventually settle on, I suppose. but clearly risk stratification is important, not only for best yield and the best impact on mortality, but also on reducing harms. Next slide, please. Um, just on the question of harms and how we might uh, reduce them. This was a piece of work uh, from the PLCO trial that was looking at how we could use comorbidity perhaps to um, uh, look at risk. Uh, the only comorbidity that predicted for any complication was COPD, and that was in respiratory complications, probably not surprising. Uh, no comorbidity really predicted for uh, any other complications. That said, what's striking for me is that surgical biopsies uh, clearly increase the risk of respiratory, cardiac, and infectious complications. Again, no great surprise in that, but it does reinforce the fact that we have to be really careful about how we introduce uh, surgical. Um, investigations into a screening program, given that they will cause harm. Um, Obviously, bronchoscopy and uh, needle biopsies are much more likely to cause respiratory complications, and again, being very careful about how we approach the diagnostic pathway. Uh, Next slide, please. I'm very pleased to see data from the summit trial for the first time. Uh, It's the first time I've seen it, Uh, and this was very much reflecting 10,000 participants uh, that have gone through so far, and this paper particularly focused on um, the management of pulmonary nodules and incidental findings. Next slide. Um, This is about pulmonary nodules, and it's very much describing the number of pulmonary nodules, rather than the number of patients uh, with them. The vast majority uh, do not require any particular action. You can see there, uh, perhaps over 13,000 nodules identified, uh, less than uh, 3,000 require any action. Um, The vast majority of those simply require a three-month or 12-month follow-up scan um, and a very small number uh, really coming through to the MDT for action. The next slide gives a very similar sort of overview, I think, for incidental findings. Uh, very few of these are actionable, so you can probably see probably less than 2,000 or so are actionable incidental findings. But interestingly, the way you can manage these is very much within program. So uh, whether it's an annual scam or a three month scam, you don't need to swamp the system with referrals or ask the GP to do a lot of things. Uh, But it does reflect how complex a screening program is and that we need to resource that and we need to track people and we need to make sure that we do keep an eye on those actionable, uh, potentially actionable findings. The GP workload can be minimized. Um, I think I calculated something along the line of around about two, two and a half percent perhaps um, that might uh, require the GP action um, and round about uh, a similar number for um, other cancer MDT referral. Um, The broad upshot of this is I think if you pay attention to excellent nodule management protocols and you adhere to them, and similarly for um, incidental finding protocols, that you really can manage the harms uh, at scale of lung cancer screening programs. And this is probably should be a focus as we develop the quality assurance um, uh, to ensure that we are absolutely not harming people from these incidental findings and uh, other small nodules. Next slide, please. And just to reinforce that a little bit, there's been a bit of work led by my colleague, Havar Alberata. Um, to, to summarise the five 5 UK-based programmes, uh, some obviously research trials, some NHS commissioned services. Um, and um, again, all of these uh, centres largely used um, modifications of the BTS nodule guidance and, and developed their own um, uh, incident finding protocols, for example. Uh, but if you can just go to the next slide, I think what's um, important about this particular um area is that when you consider the amount of noise about harms from screening over the last 10 or 15 years, in these programs, when you pay attention to, to the right protocol and adherence to protocol, and obviously try and demonstrate that you are adhering to protocol, false positive rates can be kept low, as can investigations for benign disease, as can surgical resection for benign disease, or indeed major complications from those invasive uh, treatments or deaths. So this is a really powerful summary of in-practice screening which uh, I think is uh, important to be aware of, but also important to try and emulate as these programs are uh, uh, more broadly uh, rolled out. Next slide, please. Um, Couple of slides on AI, uh, the the talk of the savior of lung cancer screening, perhaps, uh, as we have no radiologists. Um, Obviously, David Baldwin's uh, senior author on this, together with Emro Dowd, um, and this is looking at a lung cancer prediction digital biomarker, uh, next slide. Um, and the bottom line here is that if we incorporate this into the interpretation, whether it's using pulmonologists or radiologists, it does appear to be able to improve our assessment of uh, the likelihood of malignancy. Um, and, and that could only be good for harm reduction and potentially, I suppose, uh, for using non-radiologists to assist in the volume of work uh, that's going to come out of these programs whether that be pulmonologists or perhaps extended roles for radiographers, et cetera, um, may be an interesting thing to look at. But I uh, thought very promising data uh, and probably the first time I've seen something that looked quite meaningful from an AI perspective. Next slide. Um, and then really one has to go to this, uh, maybe, maybe not the best or last, but this was at the presidential symposium. Um, this uh, first slide was really just describing the, the the really terrible situation which appears to be in Asia with the huge burden of non-smoking related lung cancer. You can see here about ninety-three percent of female lung cancers are in never smokers. Um, it's an increasing phenomena. Um, it's clearly a different disease to what uh, we are used to treating in the West, uh, in large part. Uh, and obviously, screening is very much for uh, ever smokers at the moment. So the Talent trial. Um, Uh, was focusing on screening in never-smokers or in light-smokers, next slide, Um, who, uh, between 35 and 75, who, as I said, have never smoked or maybe had a very small uh, pack-year exposure, But uh, in general, having one or more of family history of lung cancer or some sort of environmental tobacco or cooking uh, smoke sort of exposure, some of the cooking is to do with nitrosamine exposure as a a carcinogen. Um, And despite what that graph maybe looks like, to confuse me at the outset, um, it's not a randomized trial to contrast enhanced CT or to low dose. This is basically, if you were eligible, you had a chest x-ray, if that was negative, you were eligible for screening with low-dose chest CT. Um, They've recruited 12,000 patients to this, Um, next uh, next, uh, slide. Um, And you can see what's probably different to what we're used to when we think about screening is that this is uh, largely a female population, 75% roughly. They're younger by a good 10 years, Um, dominated by never-smokers, 93%. But over half had a family history of at least the first or second degree relative with lung cancer. Uh, Next slide. And these were the outcomes from the baseline CT, which uh, obviously describes uh, 2.5% lung cancer detection rate. Uh, And a lot of the conversation here was about just how much greater this was uh, compared to NLST and Nelson. Um, But the devil's always in the detail, isn't it? So uh, if you look at the histologic diagnoses there, um, 58% adenocarcinoma in situ. uh, Sorry, not 58, 58 as a number. uh, 71 with minimally invasive um, adenocarcinoma. Now, these are entities that I think in UK programs and probably in Western programs, we try our damnedest to not touch in the slightest. They are uh, relatively indolent. They're probably the substance of overdiagnosis and potentially of harm. Um, And if you actually calculate, I think based on what's presented, the invasive lung cancer rate, as we would probably describe it here, was closer to about 1.5%. I think that's still striking for a non-smoking population. Um, And perhaps more worryingly, multiple primary lung cancers of the order of 18%, which I I guess we don't see that, that volume. A very aggressive definition of positive low-dose CT uh, with any ground glass nodule above five millimeters or a solid or part-solid solid solid component of six millimeters. Um, Again, most of our nodule protocols will probably exclude these from any action. Uh, Lung cancer confirmed uh, in 97% stage 0 and 1. But again, if you adjust that to uh, excluding the AIS and MIA, that's probably closer to 55%. Um, So I think whilst it's impressive data in the sense of, uh, you know, this is the first time we're seeing something in a non-smoking population, still quite a high yield, um, how this gets taken forward will obviously depend on uh, demonstrating um, survival, uh, mortality reduction rather, and uh, uh, and, uh, minimization of harms, etc. My final slide is just to really highlight, uh, if you go to the next one, Um, the impact of family history. You can see here, if you've got four family members, um, first degree relatives with lung cancer, your chance of having invasive lung cancer is 10%. So, you know, it's really interesting data, I think, and it will be interesting to see how that field uh, pans out. So, um, sorry if I've gone over, but thank you very much.
0: Richard, thank you very much. We're a couple of minutes over. Um, I think we've got time for maybe maybe literally two questions, uh, and then we will close. Um, Jeanette Rawlinson was asking, I understand firefighters regularly have screening in the US but not in the UK. Uh, Should industries, not just asbestos, uh, be considered when we're thinking about screening of lung cancer? I guess the
3: straightforward answer to that is, um, you know, where's the evidence base? Um, You know, we've we've spent a lot of time generating a phase three randomised control trial evidence base for that benefit, uh, and As we understand it at the moment, that that isn't there in that in that group. Now I totally understand perhaps the reasons why that's been included, and of course the NCCN do have a category two um, eligibility for lung cancer screening that does relax the standard ones um, and and does include uh, slightly differing indications, such as another smoking-related cancer, head and neck, uh, esophagus, or if you're a survivor. uh, I, think, I think asbestos exposure was in there, but again, you, you know, I, it, it's a difficult thing to, to do and, and a difficult thing to quantify as well. Um, I suppose if John Field was talking, you might say that the LLP does include asbestos exposure as one of the um, parameters, but again, I, that's a very subjective assessment and, and I think quite a laborious, um, in the original version of that, at least quite a laborious occupational history which I don't think has been borne out in the subsequent versions of, uh, of LLP. So um, I think we're going to struggle at the moment to get the, 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 the best gain out of the people we absolutely know will benefit. How we extend it over time as, as we can um, uh, roll things out, is it's, 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 it's the stuff of, of research, isn't it, and the stuff of proving... Uh, value. The same as in the non-smoking arena, you know, need that data to, to guide us on what the right thing to
0: do is for the investment required. Thank you. And the final question, a couple of people asked the same thing, which is uh, quite taken by the time. When An any study, will we ever see lung cancer screening for never smokers or is our population of that unfortunate group just too small for it to be uh, possible? So I think the, the obvious comment would be that,
3: you know, certainly if you're using some of the risk stratification tools, a family history of lung cancer is, is one of the things that gets you eligibility. Um, that being said, in terms of the non, the true non-smokers, um, they, they are excluded at the moment. And one seems to think the best way forward there is rather than subjecting what, what is essentially an enormous population of never-smokers to uh, radiation, is to try and find um, a a biomarker of um, of risk. Uh, I mean, simplistically, I always sort of think that if you have abnormal spirometry of any kind, you probably have abnormal lungs representing some inflammatory process, and that might be that might be a simple, cheap, non-invasive uh, way of 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 looking at that. It's certainly a predictor of lung cancer risk, uh, regardless of smoking status. Um, but you know. The, the the basic scientists and the and the the bloodborne biomarker industry will no doubt be trying to find some blood test that uh, is relevant, uh, but again would need to be trialled in terms of does it pick out the right people does it uh, translate into a mortality reduction etc cetera, etc cetera. so I think it might come in the fall of time, um, but I think we're probably uh, ten or fifteen years away from getting anywhere near close
0: to having that evidence base I would I would have thought. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much to all my speakers, Aria Shah, Fiona Macdonald, and uh, Richard Booten. Uh, thank you to First Sight Media, who are the guys behind the technology for this. And of course, thank you guys uh, for being the audience, staying 10 minutes late. Uh, definitely supper time for you guys. I'm going to finish my clinic because I'm an NHS hero. Um, tune in for the next uh, BTOG uh, webinar. Uh, I can't quite remember when it is. Um, But have a look at the website uh, and we look forward to joining you joining us then please make sure you fill out your feedback and you'll get a lovely attendance certificate uh, to show how hard you've worked. Um, Have a lovely evening. Good night.